0: You know, there's something about us when we enter situations or circumstances that make it hard for us to trust. To trust people, even people who are trustworthy. In our home fellowships this week, Julie reminded me of a time back when uh, I used to work for the world's largest property and casualty insurer, had a wonderful career... A wonderful people, a great trajectory, and the Lord, I sensed, called me to gospel ministry, which I then communicated to my wife, which was, which was I don't know, a little unsettling at first. Now, there's absolutely nothing in this story uh, that reflects poorly on Julie, nothing at all. This is just our nature when we come bump up against things that are uncertain or strange when there are unknowns. And so I, we talked about, we prayed about, the Lord helped us to, to trust in him more so that we would leave full-time secular work and enter full-time gospel ministry. It was a big change. There were a lot of uncertainties, and you wonder how the math is going to work out. I just, how's this math going to work out? You know, uh, the finances are different now, and uh, and all kinds of things change, and, and And, uh, you know, the culture where I work changes, and uh, all kinds of things are different, and it's just a little unsettling. It's easy to find it hard to trust when you have uncertainty in front of you. How's this going to work? When's this going to take place? It was just a few years later that uh, the Lord called us to leave where we were and move to a a new place, New England, that we weren't familiar with, uh, to to plant a gospel-driven church in that place. And, and I was wondering the same things there. I was like, what? this is a different situation. How's this going to work out? How am I going to sell my house? How are we going to move our kids? Where are we going to live when we get there? What's that going to be like? Are we, is it going to turn out for our good or not? There's just a lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainties. And it's, it's hard to trust even, even someone who's trustworthy when you have all those uncertainties. Situations with a lot of unknowns. You deal with a lot of unknowns in your life. You have uncertainties in your life. And it's sometimes hard to trust. It's trust in life. uh, It's true in life. And it's true in our relationship with God. Isn't it? Now Hebrews 11 chapter 1 tells us that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. Faith, your faith... In the Lord Jesus Christ, upon which your relationship with God is built, is an assurance already. It's the assurance of things hoped for. Your your eternal salvation, which is yet to come. It's the conviction, the absolute belief that something not yet seen is absolutely true. So faith has assurance baked in already. And yet, you and I want more assurance for our faith as we go along, don't we? As each day passes by, as each year passes by, we're saying to the Lord, I I sure could use some assurance. And he doesn't look down and say, assurance is already built into your faith, what's your problem? He doesn't do that. He kindly, wisely, gently, helpfully, lovingly, honestly, firmly, gives us assurance in our faith so that we can persist in pursuing righteousness. In our fail humanity, we just always want more assurance. Because as time goes by, those feelings of assurance that we had get kind of thin. And, And we need a booster, right? We want assurance from God. The wonderful thing is that God knows that about us. He knows that about us. And he's kind to reassure us so that we can trust him even in the midst of uncertainty over the long haul. I think that's what we're looking at in Abram's life this morning. We're looking at Genesis chapter 15. You know that this contains the Abrahamic covenant. There's covenantal language in it. I want to go ahead and read it, and then we'll unpack it. It'll help you to follow along uh, as I read, but also to have uh, your sermon theme or a sermon outline that's in the bulletin for you. This is the Word of God written by Moses in Genesis chapter 15. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and dark great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years.'" But I will bring judgment on the nation that they served, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch Passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand the truth of your word, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Well, Abram has this struggle with faith. Over time. And the first thing that the Lord says to Abram is, Fear not. Those are welcome words, aren't they? When God says, Fear not to believers, those are welcome words. God always diagnoses us rightly. He takes Abram's pulse and he says, Fear not, Abram. And what does Abram have to fear? Well, Moses, remember, he's the author. Moses' narration begins with the words, after these things. That that kind of points us in the right direction. After what things? Well, the things that just took place in chapter 14. After Abram returns home from defeating the four powerful kings of Mesopotamia, Abram would naturally fear their retribution. They may go back home, build up their armies, and come straight after Abram. These fierce kings might regroup and come right after him. So the first thing that the Lord says to Abram is, fear not. And so God removes, he just kind of takes off the table that thing that is worrying Abram at that moment. Now, you need to remember, God has already promised Abram that he will bless those who bless Abram. And curse those who curse Abram. And God has already Followed through on that promise by delivering his enemies into Abram's hand in chapter 14. But God sees that Abram needs further assurance. And he gives it. Abram didn't ask for it. God is just gracious to give it. To help Abram to believe. That's a wonderful thing to see about God in this passage. So after clearing the landscape of Abram's fear, the Lord says two things to help Abram move forward in faith. First, the Lord says, I am your shield. Meaning, I will protect you. Now, he's already told him that he's going to protect him, but here he is encouraging him, assuring him, saying again, I will protect you. And I think we hear that as a promise for now. God is our shield is a common metaphor in the Old Testament. You've heard it before. Psalm 33, verse 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 115, you know, redundancy builds understanding, right? Verses 9 to 11 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Yes. Yes. God knows that we spend significant amounts of time in our lives in fear of something. He's diagnosing you. He's diagnosing me. And he promises those who believe in him to always be their shield. But it's kind of funny. We don't ever pray, God, be my shield sometime next year. I'll probably be be fearful at some point in time. Be my shield, would you? No, we say, God, protect me now. God, be my shield now. We need to know that God will protect us in the midst of our fear. And he will. So much that we need not fear. So it is with Abram, and the Lord tells him, I'm your shield. Abram, I'm your shield. Trust me now. In fact, don't fear. Second, the Lord says, your reward shall be very great. Now, Abram knows that God has promised him land, offspring, and to be a blessing. Remember the promises? Land, a place, offspring, or the seed, people, and then the program that God has, the the program of redemption that God has, which is to be a blessing to others. But at the heart of those promises really is what? The one who promises them. The promiser is really at the center of all those things. You know, the old King James Version renders this same verse this way. Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I think that's the right translation. I think that's what's meant here. It's not just that Abram has these promises from God, but that God declares himself to be Abram's very great reward. Which makes total sense. To trust God's promises requires trust in God. To trust in God is to trust The things that he would say, the things that he would promise. Now, we can distinguish the two apart, but we're not meant to separate them. God himself is the guarantor of his promises. But, just like us sometimes, Abram is struggling with his faith in God and God's promises. And the question is, why? And the most obvious factor is, time. Time. Listen to the first words Abram speaks to God, recorded in Genesis. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You can, you can hear the passage of time in Abram's words, can't you? I keep going on and childless. There's, there's going to a t- time for an heir, and it's not going to be my son. It's going to be this guy, Eliezer. You can hear the passage of time in Abram's words. Abram has the promise, but Abram's circumstances, they haven't changed. They continue to be the same. Now, I don't think Abram is being sinful here. He's not disrespectful to God. He acknowledges his servant position, addressing the God as the Lord Yahweh. This isn't an act of unbelief. He's not leveling accusations against God. He's not complaining against God. He's not faithless in his question. In fact, he seems to be taking God's promise very seriously. With with faith. It's because of faith that he's saying, I don't understand how this is going to work. I don't understand when this is going to come about. Because it hasn't yet. And it hasn't for a little while. So we can see Abram's faith bumping up against the passage of time. The same things happen to us. and our faith, when we're persevering in a promise, it bumps up against time. You wake up one more day awaiting the promise. And then another day awaiting the promise by faith. Abram has the promise, but no experience of it yet. It's still in promise form. Did you notice that Abram has a backup solution? In the absence of a direct male heir, Abram is prepared to substitute his most trusted household servant to be his heir, which he would do through adoption. Abram Abram is a clever, resourceful guy, ever ready to help God to keep his promises by his own actions. He's done this before. He'll do it again. Even though Abram already has a backup plan, and even Abram is asking questions, God doesn't shut Abram down. And that should be encouraging. He's down here planning who's going to be his heir, even though God has promised him an heir. He's down here asking questions. And God doesn't shut him down. You see, God and Abram have a relationship. It's been building over, over a couple of chapters. God and Abram have a relationship, and it's in the context of that relationship that Abram is allowed to ask questions God, how will this happen? God, I don't understand. And, and God's willing to dialogue with him. I mean, this has to be encouraging to us. God knows that Abram's bewildered and allows Abram to bring his questions to him. Even more, God knows that Abram's faith needs reassurance. And he gives it. He gives it. God assures Abram's faith for the long haul. Look at verses 4 and 5. And behold, now God is speaking. The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. I mean, God is, God is gentle, but firm with Abram. First, he firmly shuts down the Eliezer idea. It's, that's off the table. No mistaking there. Eliezer will not be the heir to the promise. Okay, we've got that firmly straight, but we get this firmly straight too. Your very own son will be the heir to the promise. God clearly affirms his promise to give Abram assurance. He needs assurance. And then he does something else. God has Abram look up at the night sky and count the stars. And he assures Abram again, As numerous as the stars in heaven, Abram, so shall your offspring be. I don't know what the evidence is that you see here on earth, Abram, but you have assurance of things not seen by faith in God. You have hope in what has been promised by God. Counting the stars in the sky is not a rational argument that proves the number of Abram's future offspring. But it's a picture. It's a picture of Abram's offspring. It's an illustration. Of God's promise. God stoops down to the level of the weakness of our faith and he impresses us with the firmness of his word. It is God who created those stars and it is God who will give him his offspring, as numerous as those stars. The stars don't make God any more truthful, he's already truthful. The stars don't make his promise any more sure. His promise is already sure. But they do make Abram more sure of God and his promises. God is the one applying layer after layer after layer of assurance to Abram's faith because Abram needs it. God's gracious. God's gracious. How gracious is God? Well, he's gracious to help Abram's faith remain firm. Listen to to verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted Abram's faith to Abram as righteousness. Now, this is a massive theological statement. It's the foundation of the biblical teaching that salvation comes by faith. It's a big one. It's a cornerstone one. Abram is not righteous. Are we clear on that? Okay. Abram is not righteous. Abram does not possess the righteousness of God, which is the standard of righteousness that's being talked about here. But Abram believes God, he trusts God. His faith is in God and every promise that God has spoken. And you're saying, well, not perfectly. No, not perfectly. But he has that faith. And so God does something gracious then. He counts Abram's faith as righteousness. God imputes to Abram a righteousness that is alien or outside of him. It's not his. And that righteousness is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's imputed to Abram. Jesus Christ is Abram's seed. And God imputes this righteousness, even though all Abram does is believe. The Apostle Paul explains this very thing in Romans chapter 4. We won't go there today, but Paul uses Abram as the basis for his argument that we're saved by faith in Jesus' righteousness and not by any righteousness of our own. This is the place where he comes to explain that to new covenant people. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that Abram obeyed the call of God to leave his land and to go to the land of promise. That's why I think it's Abram had faith the moment God called him. When God called Abram all the way back in Ur of Chaldees, it was an effectual call. And Abram responded in obedience by faith. Now he had a weak and a wobbly faith, and he's getting better. That's encouraging to us as well. That happened in Genesis 12. Here in Genesis 15, Moses wants to know that and to see God's own kindness to Abram to assure and strengthen his faith, which brings us to this covenant ceremony. I just don't think we should do what we normally do, and that is to downplay these assurances that God gives to his people. I think we have a tendency to look at something back in Genesis chapter 15 and say well that's nice he assured Abram by appearing to him and talking to him and all I have is saving faith in Christ in my old Bible I sure could use some assurance are you kidding me are you kidding me we need to recognize that these assurances to Abram are assurances to us We've got way more than Abram has. Abram has a promise that he'll never see come true. He will not see his children inhabit the promised land from border to border as promised in this covenant. We do. We look back and we see that God was faithful. We have great assurance. He does it to us all the time throughout Scripture as we work our way through. If we'll pay attention and if we'll receive it and not say, oh, I want you to talk to me. I've spoken to you. I've made promises, I've kept promises, and you are saved because of them. Grace and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, okay, okay, we'll go to just a little bit of Romans chapter 4. Just, Just one real quick thing, that's all. Romans chapter 4, verse 22, Paul's talking about Abram. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. You see, Paul says, you should be assured by Abram. You should be assured by what God is doing in Abram's life in Genesis chapter 15 because it relates to your faith today, which is in the same Christ, which tells us that it was Christ that Abram was believing in. The seed was Christ. Okay, good. Just wanted to put a little exclamation point there. But it leads it leads God into this covenant ceremony with more assurance for Abram. God assures Abram with this covenant, beginning in verse 7. Now, historically, we know that covenant formulas like this were already being used in Abram's day. And this formula fits the pattern the covenant of God will later make with Israel in Jeremiah 34. And so here Abram is he's seeking assurance from God, and God's giving it in this way. Look at verses uh, 7 and 8. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now in verse 7, God is already speaking covenant language. The covenant has begun. This This is the preamble, if you will, to the covenant. First, God declares who he is to Abram. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Second, God recounts his brief history with Abram. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God not only called Abram out, God is responsible for bringing Abram out. We see the sovereignty of God that he gave Abram faith to obey when he called and he, and he brings about his purposes. And third, God promises the land to Abram. I brought you out for this purpose to give you this land to possess. Now, let me point out just a couple things before we move on. First, we can't help but notice that God's covenant language to Abram parallels God's covenant language to Israel after the Exodus. You know the big story of the Exodus, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land I promised to your forefathers. The language is parallel. That will be part of the fulfillment of his covenant here that he's making with Abram. Second, sometimes the Abrahamic Covenant can be a little bit confusing because it doesn't appear all at once. We don't find it in one verse or even one chapter. If I said, go go find me the Abrahamic Covenant, you would go back and you would hold several pages in your hand. It unfolds across several chapters covering 25 years of Abram's life. So we have have the promises back in chapter 12, the promise of a land, the promise of a seed, his offspring, and the promise that Abraham and his seed will be a blessing. We have those promised, and those are the same promises that are in the covenants. Then here in chapter 15, we have a covenant ceremony that's regarding the land. And then in chapter 17, we'll have more covenant language focused on the people. So, so don't get confused that it's spread out all over the place. Just know it's spread out all over the place. And you kind of have to read through quite a bit of it and then gather it all together. But it still hinges on those three promises of land, offspring, and to be a blessing. And so don't let that, don't let that fact that it's spread out all over lead you to any confusion. Just realize that the blessing unfolds as we work our way through Abram's life. Now in verse 8. Abram asks for assurance. Abram asks for a sign, if you will. Lord, help me to understand how it shall pass that I will possess this land. How's that going to work? It reminds me of Mary's question of the angel Gabriel. Remember, Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to bear the Son of God? And Mary says, How shall this be? How is that going to come about? And the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and you'll bear a son. It sounds like that. It's that kind of a question. And then God puts Abram to work. Look at verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. So God God instructs Abram to gather some animals, and and it's as if Abram realizes what's happening. When we had our dog, if at around 5 p.m. I stood up, and I walked to the pantry, and I opened the door, her tail would start wagging. Because she knew it was dinner time. She knew I was going to put food in the bowl and that it was dinner time. It seems that as soon as God says, gather these animals, Abram knows what's about to happen. God is going to put his promise of the land in a formal, unbreakable promise, a covenant. And he's going to seal that covenant with a ceremony. A ceremony that Abram could see and understand and be able to point to. God is going to assure Abram in a way that will answer Abram's question and assure Abram's faith. Without any further instructions, Abram gathers the animals, and he goes ahead and cuts them in half. And he lays them, their pieces on the ground, one on each side, leaving a pathway in between the halves. That's pretty gruesome stuff. That's a pretty gruesome, bloody scene. Animals split in half, having spilled their life's blood... And and now, Abram's having to shoo away the buzzards, right, who are coming to try to take the animal carcasses. I mean, what's this all about? Well, to cut a covenant, that's the terminology, to cut a covenant is not only to make a promise, but it's also to bring a curse. It makes a promise, but it brings a curse on the one who would break the promise the one who would not fulfill the covenant promise. In the Old Testament, animals are used in place of men. The party who makes the promise will walk the pathway between the animal has, as if to say, if I fail to uphold my part of the covenant, may it be to me as it was to these animals these animals have been destroyed their life's blood shed if i fail in the covenant destroy me that's the level of commitment of making the covenant as night falls god causes a deep sleep to fall upon abram and then abram wakes up to god making this covenant with him i wonder if i wonder if you sense a little a little remembrance there that's an echo of adam in the garden When God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And he created the woman. And then Adam woke up to receive the woman that God had given to him. And enter into a marriage covenant with her. Here, the great darkness is the presence of the Lord around Abram. In the the Old Testament, we see God appearing in this way. This great darkness. This fearsome, powerful God. And Abram wakes up to hear God's answer to his question. Abram asked, how will I know? God answers, No for certain. Here's the answer. And God gives this prophecy about Abram's offspring, who we know is Israel. Abram's descendants will sojourn as aliens in a foreign land. We know that's Egypt. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But God will judge their oppressor. We know that that, uh, God will afflict Pharaoh and his people with 10 plagues. But they will plunder Egypt of their wealth, just as Abram did when he came out of Egypt earlier. And then when God is ready to punish the wicked people of Canaan, he refers to them here as the Amorites. He uses that as a general term for all of the the peoples in the land of Canaan. When God's ready to punish the wicked people of Canaan, that's when they'll enter the land and possess it. It's a prophecy. There's There's an almost parenthetic note of comfort to Abram, that he'll live a long life and die in peace. But it's then that the most astounding thing happens. The most astounding thing happens in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this Land, You see, God himself passes between the animals. The fire and the smoke are manifest presence of God, who alone takes the curse of the covenant upon himself. Abram doesn't walk through. The Lord God manifested as fire and smoke. He walks through. He takes upon himself this responsibility. Look at God's unconditional commitment. He takes full responsibility for bringing Abram's seed into the land. And if he should fail, he declares, may he be destroyed as these animals were destroyed. So the Lord promises to Abram the same promise he promised before. To your offspring I give this land. The covenant's more formal. It provides more details. But it doesn't make God's promise any more true. God's promise was always true. But it does provide a real picture in living color and smell-o-vision, I suppose, with all the dead animals of God's faithfulness and steadfastness. His His unconditional commitment. So God's not so much expressing truth in the covenant, as he is impressing his truth upon Abram and upon us. As the covenant unfolds, we'll see that there, there are some conditions, some stipulations on Abram. He, I mean, he does have to go on believing, he does have to go on obeying, he does have to go on serving the Lord. But here we see God's unconditional commitment to fulfill his. Promise. God reveals to Abram and to us that God himself is willing to suffer the curse of the covenant. That is not only a great assurance to our faith in God, it points us to Abram's seed, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus dies on the cross... The curse for us, breaking the Mosaic law, falls on him. The Mosaic law was made to fail in a way. It does not save. It only condemns. Yet God fulfills the Abrahamic covenant in the new covenant. Under the new covenant, Christ secures the forgiveness of our sins by bringing the curse upon our sins, upon Himself in our place. This is how we come to know God by faith. By righteousness that is credited to us through our faith in Christ. And our faith is greatly assured because our faith is in Christ, not in us, not in our works, not in our doings, not in our righteousness, which is utterly lacking, but in Jesus, His blood, His righteousness. I want to take a minute and just unpack two ways that we can see, we can experience, we can have God assuring our faith in this. The first is that God has counted us righteous by faith in Christ. That's worth exploring just a little bit. If you would, turn to Galatians chapter 3. You may be saying, well, Scott, why don't we go to Romans chapter 4? Because I'm holding Romans chapter 4. Okay, we've, we've got several chapters to cover the covenant with, and I'm holding chapter 4. But I want us to go to, I want us to, go to Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to read it. And I'm just going to make a few comments as I read, okay? We're in chapter 3, and I'll just read verses 10 to 14. There's more. In fact, just above this, beginning in verse 6, which we've referred to already, Paul is again referring to Abram as the one who believed in God, and that belief, that faith, was credited to him as righteousness. And so he, he points out that those who are of faith then are the sons of Israel. That those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abram, who's the man of faith. And then in verse 10: For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and to do them. Now, Paul, you know, is arguing two systems. One is a right system and one is a wrong system. There are those who think by their performance of the law, that is the Mosaic law, by keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly, they generate their own righteousness which God will accept. The problem is they can't. No one can uphold the law perfectly. The other system is the the law of grace. That it's by God's grace that he grants faith to the sinner. Faith that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thereby have righteousness, the righteousness that is Christ, who did keep the law, credited to their account. So those are the two systems that he's arguing. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things, written in the book of the law, and do them. We can't do them. So you're under a curse. Now it is evident, verse 11, that there is no one is justified before God by the law. For the Bible says that the righteous shall live by faith. So there's two reasons why you don't want to go with law-based salvation. One, it doesn't work because you can't do it. Two, the Bible itself says you'll never be saved by law-based salvation. You'll never be saved by your works. You will always and only be saved by the righteousness that comes to you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 11. Lots of reasons to forego your own morality as the reason why God should accept you. The only reason that God will accept you is the very righteousness of Christ that's imputed to you. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So, you, you got to get this. It's not a sleight of hand. It's, it's really simple. Just, just Christ... Christ saves us from the curse of the law, the penalty we should receive for not performing according to God's righteous standard. But that standard is not the Abrahamic covenant that we're talking about. It's the Mosaic covenant that's to come. It's the Ten Commandments in that law. So Christ is going to satisfy that law when he dies on the cross, when he bleeds on the cross for us, and in that way fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. That we receive righteousness by faith, just as Abram did. That's what Paul's talking about. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's Christ on the cross. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us, sinners, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God comes and dwells in us through faith. And we're given the righteousness of Christ through faith that we might enter the land and have Abram's promises in Christ. That's how it happens. And so I just want to ask you, if you, if you haven't believed by faith in Christ, if you, then you have not received the righteousness of Christ, which is the thing, the one and only thing that you need so that you can enter God's presence so that you can be saved from eternal rejection from God's presence, which is what sinners are deserving of, we call it hell. And instead, enter the promised land where God abides and where the faithful abide with Him because they've been given, not earned, but been given as a gift, the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so these words that Moses credits to Abraham that, that because of his faith, Abram was counted righteous by God. When you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and stop seeking salvation based on your own wonderful greatness, which God does not see as wonderful or great, He simply condemns it as your, as your pride and your rejection of His Son. But when you would receive when you would place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would receive the righteousness that you need to enter heaven and to go to that place that God's prepared. This is a wonderful truth. This is a wonderful offer. If you've not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe today. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. Have the righteousness of Christ now. Have your heart transformed so that you would be the obedient and faithful servant that God has declared you. Do that. That's how we all become sons and daughters of Abram. Sons and daughters and heirs of the promise that was made to Abram. It's made to us in Christ. The other thing that I just want to encourage us in is that God brings us home by faith in Christ. You know, the first... So, so chapters 12 to 15, although there are three promises, chapters 12 to 15 in Genesis focus mainly on the land. Chapters 16 to 18 are going to focus mainly on the people. It's, we've got to put it all together, but that's, but that's kind of the thing, so we're kind of focused on the land here. And there is this promise that God is going to bring us home to his land. Turn to to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the hall of faith. And he says a lot about Abram in this. And I want to read a few verses. I want to read verses 8 to 16. Make a couple comments and apply this. Because if you have worries, anxieties, problems, troubles, uncertainties in your life, you want assurance of your faith. And this is it. This is it. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised For he has prepared for them a city. Now, look at the emphasis on the place that they will inherit. The place that God has prepared for them. The place that God has promised. It's it's like it's their north star. They're keeping an eye on that north star as they navigate their wanderings here on earth. That place is their destination. If they were using using the map on their smartphones, it's where the little blue line ends. That little dot where the blue line ends, that's their destination. That's what they're keeping an eye on. And like them, we are sojourners here on earth. Do you remember the definition of the word sojourn I gave a few sermons back? The sojourn isn't the wandering. The sojourn is the short-term, temporary stay. We're here for a short term. We're here temporarily. We're here for a little while, but this isn't our destination. We have a promise from God that forces us to acknowledge that we are strangers and exiles in this world. This is the land that God has called us to sojourn in. So we sojourn here by faith, not by sight. We live in righteousness. We've been given by Christ. And we'll tell others the promises of God so that they can become children of the promise too. But our eyes are not the eyes of Lot focused on this place. Like Abram, God has lifted our eyes to see the promised place. We're looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Our faith is not just in His promises, but in Him. The promiser. We desire a better. A heavenly country. We desire a homeland for the family of God. For He has prepared it for us and called us to it. And he is bringing us there through assured faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray as the man in the Gospels prayed. We believe, but help our unbelief. We have faith, but we, we sometimes falter and wobble in our faith, and we need some buttressing. We need some strengthening. We need some assurance, and we pray that you'd give it to us. We pray that your spirit that indwells us would apply these words which you have given to us, that we might be assured of our faith in you, of our faith in Christ, of our eternal destiny, and of how we should walk. Now, as we sojourn, not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness that you have given to us by faith. This is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.